Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Nation magazine, who assesses corporate media's coverage of Donald Trump's 2024 election campaign, already repeating many of the same journalistic mistakes made in 2016. Jackie Allen Dussault of the Hartford, Connecticut Catholic Worker Community, who talks about the early August civil disobedience actions at a Netherlands airbase that linked the threat of nuclear war and the climate crisis. And Abdul Jabbar, Emeritus Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at City College of San Francisco, who examines the U.S. State Department's role in removing Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan from power in April last year. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. While the bloody civil war in Sudan and the coup in uranium-rich Niger grab headlines, a civil conflict is smoldering in English-speaking areas of Cameroon. The conflict that has raged for six years at the cost of thousands of lives involves Anglophone separatists who are trying to form a breakaway state called Ambazonia in the country's minority English-speaking regions. Cameroon's separatist movement stems from the perceived marginalization of the English-speaking community by the French-speaking majority since a 1961 plebiscite fused both parts of the country into one. Foreign Policy magazine observed that Cameroon increasingly looks like Sudan before civil war broke out there in April. Earlier this year, Canada offered a peace process for the region backed by Pope Francis. However, within days, Cameroon's 90-year-old president, Paul Bia, rejected the offer, stating he would not allow any external forces or foreign nation to act as a mediator in the conflict. Hillside Dairy in Merced County, California, is growing like gangbusters. The dairy started out with 3,800 cows 20 years ago, but since then, the herd has more than doubled in size. Hillside is just one of dozens of dairies with plans for expansion in California's San Joaquin Valley. Access to ample land and a warm climate has made California the leading milk producer in the U.S., Since 2011, herd sizes have jumped 36%, and dairies now generate $1 billion annually. In these times, reports that the growth of dairies in the San Joaquin Valley has come at a price. The waste from all those cows doesn't just smell bad. Industrial dairies are the source of groundwater and air pollution that's causing respiratory illnesses like asthma, sometimes forcing children to be placed on respirators. But resistance to dairy expansion is growing, especially among the valley's poor and mainly Latino farm workers who are already at a higher risk for respiratory problems due to agricultural pollution. Activists have recently launched a campaign to pressure the Merced County Board of Supervisors to reject Hillside Dairy's expansion plan and are educating their neighbors about the health risks associated with industrial dairies. 
expansion opponents have teamed up with communities facing similar problems across the U.S. and met with staff from both the federal and state environmental protection agencies. For many working Americans, a good job is not enough to pay for life's necessities like food and rent. With paychecks not covering day-to-day expenses, many fall into debt and accept deceptive offers from predatory payday lenders with sky-high interest rates, some as high as 400%. It often starts with a simple loan to pay off a debt, but it can lead to a revolving door of taking out one loan after another. Over a decade ago, the Dodd-Frank financial reform law sought to constrain predatory lending practices. While the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Board worked to crack down on these high-priced lenders, they still thrive in many black and brown communities amid low wages and generational poverty. In recent years, communities of color have been hit hard by bank branch closures. According to the American Prospect, 6 million Americans today don't have a bank account. Consequently, low-income people are more likely to look for neighborhood pawn shops or payday lenders when they need financial services. Consumer advocate Diane Standard told the Rhode Island legislature payday lenders engage in a type of reverse redlining located primarily in communities that have been historically and systematically deprived of mainstream low-cost financial services. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On the evening of August 14th, Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants were indicted on criminal charges in Fulton County, Georgia, for their efforts to subvert the 2020 election vote count in Georgia. Prosecutors charged Trump with 13 counts, including violating the state's racketeering act, soliciting a public officer to violate their oath, conspiring to impersonate a public officer, conspiring to commit forgery in the first degree, and conspiring to file false documents. Trump has now been indicted four times on 91 charges in just four months, including special counsel Jack Smith's federal charges for conspiring to subvert American democracy, the adult film star Hush Money case in New York, and the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case in Florida that will likely go to trial next year. Given the serious felony charges Trump faces as he runs to win the Republican Party presidential nomination, it's clear that the 2024 election campaign will be like no other in modern American history. Your reporter spoke with Chris Lehman, D.C. bureau chief for The Nation magazine, who talks about his recent article titled The Press Can't Wait to Do 2016 All Over Again and concern that corporate media's coverage of Trump's 2024 election campaign is already repeating many of the same serious journalistic mistakes made in 2016. You know, there's a lot of, in my view, rudderless and pointless debates swirling around First Amendment freedoms at this moment where we're only interpreting them as they apply to Donald Trump as he faces the legal consequences of his action. But in reality, you know, freedom in the press and the 
the First Amendment um, were a critical part of the founding um, of this country because it's essential for a democracy to have an informed citizenry, to have um, citizens who are, you know, um, up to date on the issues of the day, who know the candidates running for office, who are able to make reasoned choices and conduct public deliberation about the most pressing issues before them. Um, None of that, I would argue, uh, occurred in 2016. Uh, Instead, we did have this kind of uh, rudderless a spectacle of, uh, you know, and, and Jeff Zucker, um, the uh, former head of CNN, which is the network that run all those um, unfiltered Trump rallies and, and pointless footage of empty podiums and jets on tarmacs, um, you know, said in defense of, of that completely counter-journalistic decision that we just had to keep our cameras trained on Trump because, quote, we just didn't know what he would say next. Um, that has nothing to do <laughs> with an informed citizenry or, you know, advancing knowledge of the issues of the day or, or promoting public deliberation. It is a pure witless spectacle for the sake of witless spectacle. And and Jeff Zucker is a master of that because he was, after all, the producer at ABC who wooed Trump to star in The Apprentice, Um the you know dec- nearly decade long reality TV show um, that basically gave you know the second life to Donald Trump's public uh, career. How should, in your view, U.S. media be covering this election coming up in 2024, and specifically for Donald Trump? What do they need to do different? First of all, rather than this rote reflex of you know going parachuting out to diners in the hinterlands to. Um, talk to Trump supporters, you know, talk to people who formerly supported Trump and who are disillusioned. There are plenty of them. That's a big reason Joe Biden won in 2020. And yes, he did win the election. (laughs) Um, That's another facet of it is, you know, the corrosive effect of continually platforming, not just Trump, but, you know, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Sidney Powell, you know, the whole a menagerie of liars and grifters in the Trump movement is key to creating this corrosive, um, you know, delegitimization of um, our democracy. Um, you talk about political violence, but also the, you know, um, right after January 6th, there was a, a brief moment where Republicans were appalled by uh, what happened at the Capitol. They were appalled by the violence there. They were appalled by the, you know, clear and present threat to democratic order. And uh, they were on the verge of, you know, of having a break with Trump. Mitch McConnell sanctioned Republican senators to vote their conscience in uh, the second impeachment uh, proceeding. So did Kevin McCarthy, amazingly enough, uh, who's the most quizzling and invertebrate Republican I've ever <laughs> had to cover in my life. Um, but, you know, they flipped right away. And um, so we went from this moment where, you know, there was a time uh, not that long ago where a significant plurality of Republican poll respondents said they did not agree that the election had been stolen. Um, Over time, because of the, you know, uncritical coverage accorded to election deniers in the press and, you know, the, the failure to call these things out for what they are, dangerous lies that attack 
the basic um, functioning of our democracy. It's now a, an overwhelming majority of Republicans who believe that Joe Biden illegally stole the election. So, you know, it's a simple fix, but it, it definitely needs to be done. Is like every time you mention Donald Trump on the air, you say who plotted the illegal coup to overthrow the U.S. government. That is a fact. <laughs> and that is a, a very important piece of information that has been crowded out by all the noise and empty spectacle that the press just reflexively gives to campaign coverage writ large, and especially to Donald Trump. That was Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Nation magazine and a contributing editor at The Baffler. Find a link to his recent Nation article titled The Press Can't Wait to Do 2016 All Over Again and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the Netherlands on the morning of August 8th, 10 peace and climate activists, six from the U.S., three from the Netherlands and a German doctor, entered Volkhol Air Base, where an estimated 15 U.S. nuclear bombs are stockpiled. The group held banners, knelt on the runway, prayed for peace, and glued down copies of Article 1 and 2 of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons on the runway. The treaty declares that nations with nuclear arms may not share these weapons by basing them in non-nuclear countries. Twenty-five protesters were taken into custody and later released with a small fine, which no one paid. A few days later, another group of peace activists held a similar protest in Germany. The actions took place during the week commemorating 78 years since the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. The publication The Nuclear Resistor wrote, This nonviolent resistance action took place as part of an international peace camp at Volkel Air Base. The radical branches of the climate movement and the peace movement have joined together for a week of protest and action. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Jackie Allen Dussault of the Hartford, Connecticut Catholic Worker Community who participated in the protests. Here she talks about the action, why it was undertaken, the consequences of the protest, and prospects for future collaboration between the climate and peace movements. It was a combination of um, anti-nuclear and climate change activists, so it was a really good coming together of those two communities, which are kind of united by the fact that our military is violating international law by sharing nuclear weapons with European countries, and uh, all of the world's militaries are violating the um, Paris Accords because they made themselves exempt from having to say how much what the carbon footprint is for all the flights and the, the you know all the military stuff is there's no way to be accountable to any work for climate change because no one has any information. So just tell uh, our listeners exactly what you all did. There was a digging of a tunnel involved. Is that right? The first day we went, we went to blockade some of the gates. There were four or five gates and we had blockades at different gates and we uh, were able to close the base for an hour or two and we were able to um, hang banners and do sidewalk messages on all of the areas where cars and traffic drive in through all the different gates. The second day, 10 of us that were Catholic workers from the United States and two Catholic workers from the Netherlands were able to climb um, onto the base and uh, we did an action on the tarmac. 
we had a liturgy and we held our banners and we uh, also wrote messages to the military. And um, the third day was an action in concert with um, some folks from Extinction Rebellion and different climate change groups. And we did an action where uh, the year before folks had began digging on the outside of the base and they dug a big enough hole to tunnel through and get into the base and do, a, do an action inside the base. Our action, I think it was 16 people that were arrested, you know, the minute we put shovels in, they would take us and arrest us. But it was a sort of a symbolic action to call other activists to come and begin to confront the military about the use of nuclear weapons, especially with what's going on in Ukraine. And also um, for what's happening, you know, all the resources and engineering and money and planning put into developing nuclear weapons is something that could really be applied to deal with climate change. Are you done? I mean, what happened? What was the result? You got arrested, but were there fines or do you have to go back to appear in court or what? There might be fines. I don't think we'll have to go back. I don't think we can go back because uh, most of the Americans were given a, our passports were taken and stamped that we can't return to the to the EU for over a year. So I guess we don't have to go back for a trial if we're not allowed to go there at all. We were just sort of struck by, you know, here's some peace activists that are trying to bring to con people's consciousness what a contradiction it is that the militaries of the world can exempt themselves from treaties and agreements and international problems that are really related to all of our, our survival and our children and grandchildren. And yet we'll be the ones that are told that we can't go there for a year and the military can violate airspace anywhere and bring the toxins and poisons and, and their nuclear loads anywhere in the world. It sounds like you had some really good collaboration with European anti-nuclear groups and, and climate groups. Do you see that moving forward, producing more joint efforts, or what do you think? I certainly hope so. I mean, it makes so much sense for the two movements to come together. And over the summer, between the you know Canadian wildfires making air down here difficult to breathe, and while we were there, we were hearing about what was going on in Hawaii and watching all the flooding up in Vermont that had happened and all of that water came down the Connecticut River and dumped into the sound and it was, you know, the ocean was affected. I think that folks are coming to realize we share one sky, we share one water and folks have to come together and begin resisting and doing the work to make, or make our governments be accountable and deal with what's happening. That was Jackie Allen Dusso of the Hartford, Connecticut Catholic Worker Community. Learn more about this summer's nuclear weapons and climate protests in Europe by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. According to the Intercept investigative news site, a classified Pakistani government cable reveals that the U.S. State Department, in a meeting on March 7th last year, pressured the Pakistani government to remove the nation's Prime Minister, Imran Khan, from office. U.S. officials in the Biden administration were angry about the Prime Minister's neutrality over Russia's invasion of Ukraine and threatened unspecified consequences for Pakistan if Khan remained in power. The March 7th meeting between the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. and two U.S. State Department officials 
has been the focus of intense scrutiny and speculation in Pakistan over the past year and a half, as former Prime Minister Khan publicly accused the Pakistani military in Washington of colluding to oust him from office, which occurred on April 9th last year, when he lost a critical vote of confidence in Parliament. Khan, who is campaigning to regain the Prime Minister's office in a general election later this year, was sentenced to three years in prison on corruption charges on August 5th, charges that he denies. Khan has also been barred from seeking public office for five years. Your reporter spoke with Abdul Jabbar, emeritus professor of interdisciplinary studies at City College of San Francisco, who examines the facts surrounding charges that the U.S. pressured Pakistan to remove Prime Minister Khan from power last year. One day after Donald Lu's meeting with the Pakistani ambassador, in which he talks about the no-confidence motion against Imran Khan, the next day the motion was introduced in the parliament, one day after that. And one month after that, he was removed from power. The U.S. government did not think of the welfare of the people of Pakistan, 230 million people. Because when the change was made, the army installed the worst kind of incompetent and corrupt people. They, 60% of the parliament that was installed by the army, they were on bail, 60%. That is no exaggeration. The facts are all there. They were on bail. And one last thing on that issue, why I have no doubt that uh, Imran Khan's statements have been accurate, is that Imran Khan was neutral. He was trying to bring together countries through reconciliation. Now, what happened after his removal? Pakistan's government, the current government, is now applying weapons to Ukrainian military. And just recently, on August 3rd, according to a Pakistani newspaper, Pakistan's parliament approved the signing of a defense pact with the U.S., the joint, tra- joint exercises, operations, training, etc. So this defense pact with the U.S., topping of the cheaper oil and wheat for Pakistani suffering masses, has come at the cost of 230 million people of Pakistan who love America, but they hate U.S. government's policies. Professor Jabbar, I did want to ask you further about the uh, State Department denial. As this article in The Intercept brought out, U.S. State Department spokespersons have repeatedly denied that the U.S. had any role in the removal of Imran Khan from power. They're very aggressive in denying that accusation from Imran Khan and the evidence provided in this cable. What's your take on their denial? Yes, Scott, thank you for asking that question. You know, we all, I am guilty of that too, we all go to news and we want to spend the least amount of time. So we go for news to uh, spokespersons of the State Department. And his name is Matthew Miller, one of them. And he blatantly lied about the contents of the cable. He, any literate person who can read English can understand that he is not telling the truth, that it is insulting to all of us that he thinks that we really cannot 
understand what the cable contents are. Uh, I'm giving you one example. In the words of Matthew Miller, he says, there is nothing in the comments by Donald Luke that shows the U.S. is taking a position on who the leader of Pakistan should be. Donald Lu's statement to the ambassador that a dent has been made by Imran Khan's policies, and we will see if the dent can be removed. The dent is Imran Khan. Isn't that taking a position? So, um, uh, Mr. Miller is uh, uh, amazingly, I would say, ignorant if he cannot read between the lines. It is not even between the lines. It is explicit. Well, I did want to ask you an important question about uh, the importance of this investigative piece uh, by The Intercept. Why should Americans care about the alleged U.S. role in removing the head of state in Pakistan? Certainly, we have to be aware that Pakistan is a nuclear-armed nation. And we also have to understand that the United States has a long history of engaging in overthrowing dozens of governments across the world governments that the United States has disliked or declared as enemies through many, many decades. How would you answer that question, Professor? Why should Americans care about this story? We shouldn't allow our government to continue to play havoc with the lives of innocent people who want nothing but our friendship and love. The biggest question is how American people can help. We should call our representatives in the Congress, our senator, our congressman or congresswoman, and say, why are we doing it to Pakistan's people? It is a humanitarian disaster. I don't think our people here know the extent of what has happened there. It is totally a fascistic state that the U.S. is happy now, government I'm talking about, because they have achieved their objective. The objective was to turn Pakistan against Russia, to turn Pakistan also. Now, right now, they're turning it against China, uh, signing the pact, defense pact. But that is a very uh, bankrupt ethically and, in the long run, counterproductive policy. The U.S. government has succeeded in the short run. 10,000 members of the party of Imran Khan, 10,000 are in jail, and they have been Top leadership has been arrested. Most of them have been tortured. Journalists have been murdered. That was Abdul Jabbar, Emeritus Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at City College of San Francisco. Find a link to the Intercept report on Imran Khan's ouster and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio, and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, KITE in Hoopa, California, the Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.